Section 32 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume One F, Section Thirty Two, Chapter Sixty Nine, Part Two. The Duke, during his abode in Scotland, had behaved with great civility towards the gentry and nobility, and by his courtly demeanor had much won upon their affections. But his treatment of the enthusiast was still somewhat rigorous, and in many instances he appeared to be a man of a severe, if not an unrelenting, temper. It is even asserted that he sometimes assisted at the torture of criminals, and looked on with tranquillity, as if he were considering some curious experiment. He left the authority in the hands of the Earl of Aberdeen, Chancellor, and the Earl of Queensbury, Treasurer. A very arbitrary spirit appeared in their administration. A gentleman of the name of Weir was tried, because he had kept company with one who had been in rebellion though that person had never been marked out by process or proclamation. The inferences upon which Weir was condemned, for a prosecution by the government and a condemnation were in Scotland the same thing, hung upon each other after the following manner. No man, it was supposed, could have been in a rebellion without being exposed to suspicion in the neighborhood. If the neighborhood had suspected him, it was to be presumed that each individual had likewise heard of the grounds of suspicion. Every man was bound to declare to the government his suspicion against every man, and to avoid the company of traitors. To fail in this duty was to participate in the treason. The conclusion, on the whole, was, You have conversed with a rebel, therefore you are yourself a rebel. A reprieve was with some difficulty procured for Weir, but it was seriously determined to make use of the precedent. Courts of judicature were erected in the southern and western counties, and a strict inquisition carried on against this new species of crime. The term of three years was appointed for the continuance of these courts, after which an indemnity was promised. Whoever would take the test was instantly entitled to the benefit of this indemnity. The Presbyterians, alarmed with such tyranny, from which no man could deem himself safe, began to think of leaving the country, and some of their agents were sent to England in order to treat with the proprietors of Carolina for a settlement in that colony. Any addition seemed preferable to living in their native country, which, by the prevalence of persecution and violence, was become as insecure to them as a den of robbers. Above two thousand persons were outlawed on the pretense of their conversing or having intercourse with rebels, and they were continually hunted in their retreat by soldiers, spies, informers, and oppressive magistrates. It was usual to put ensnaring questions to people living peaceably in their own houses, such as, Will you renounce the covenant? Do you esteem the rising at Bothwell to be rebellion? Was the killing of the Archbishop of St. Andrew's murder? And when the poor deluded creatures refused to answer, capital punishments were inflicted on them. 
even women were brought to the gibbet for this pretended crime a number of fugitives rendered frantic by oppression had published a seditious declaration renouncing allegiance to charles stuart whom they called as they for their parts had indeed some reason to esteem him a tyrant this incident afforded the privy council a pretense for an unusual kind of oppression soldiers were dispersed over the country and power was given to all commission officers even the lowest to oblige every one they met with to abjure the declaration and upon refusal instantly without further questions to shoot the delinquent it were endless as well as shocking to enumerate all the instances of persecution or in other words of absurd tyranny which at that time prevailed in scotland one of them however is so singular that i cannot forbear relating it three women were seized and the customary oath was tendered to them by which they were to abjure the seditious declaration above mentioned they all refused and were condemned to a capital punishment by drowning one of them was an elderly woman the other two were young one eighteen years of age the other only thirteen even these violent persecutors were ashamed to put the youngest to death but the other two were conducted to the place of execution and were tied to stakes within the sea-mark at low water a contrivance which rendered their death lingering and dreadful the elderly woman was placed farthest in and by the rising of the waters was first suffocated the younger partly terrified with a view of her companion's death partly subdued by the entreaty of her friends was prevailed with to say god save the king immediately the spectators called out that she had submitted and she was loosened from the stake major winram the officer who guarded the execution again required her to sign the abjuration and upon her refusal he ordered her instantly to be plunged in the water where she was suffocated the severity of the administration in scotland is in part to be ascribed to the duke's temper to whom the king had consigned over the government of that country and who gave such attention to affairs as to allow nothing of moment to escape him even the government of england from the same cause began to be somewhat infected with the same severity the duke's credit was great at court though neither so much beloved nor esteemed as the king he was more dreaded and thence an audience more exact as well as a submission more obsequious was paid to him the saying of waller was remarked that charles in spite to the parliament who had determined that the duke should not succeed him was resolved that he should reign even in his lifetime the king however who loved to maintain a balance in his councils still supported halifax whom he created a marquis and made privy seal though ever in opposition to the duke this man who possessed the finest genius and the most extensive capacity of all employed in public affairs during the present reign affected a species of neutrality between the parties and was esteemed the head of that small body known by the denomination of trimmers this conduct which is more natural to men of integrity than of ambition could not however procure him the former character and he was always with reason regarded as an intriguer rather than a patriot 
Sunderland, who had promoted the exclusion bill and who had been displaced on that account, was again, with the duke's consent, brought into the administration. The extreme duplicity, at least variableness, of this man's conduct through the whole course of his life, made it be suspected that it was by the king's direction he had mixed with the country party. Hyde, created Earl of Rochester, was first commissioner of the treasury, and was entirely in the duke's interests. The king himself was obliged to act as head of a party, a disagreeable situation for a prince, and always the source of much injustice and oppression. He knew how obnoxious the dissenters were to the church, and he resolved, contrary to the maxims of toleration which he had hitherto supported in England, to gratify his friends by the persecution of his enemies. The laws against conventicles were now rigorously executed, an expedient which, the king knew, would diminish neither the numbers nor influence of the nonconformist, and which is, therefore, to be deemed more the result of passion than of policy. Scarcely any persecution serves the intended purpose, but such as amounts to a total extermination. Though the king's authority made every day great advances, it still met with considerable obstacles, chiefly from the city, which was entirely in the hands of the malcontents. The juries, in particular, named by the sheriffs, were not likely to be impartial judges between the crown and the people. And after the experiments already made in the case of Shaftesbury and that of College, treason, it was apprehended, might there be committed with impunity. There could not, therefore, be a more important service to the court than to put affairs upon a different footing. Sir John Moore, the mayor, was gained by Secretary Jenkins, and encouraged to insist upon the customary privilege of his office of naming one of the sheriffs. Accordingly, when the time of election came, he drank to North, a Levant merchant, who accepted of that expensive office. The country party said that, being lately returned from Turkey, he was, on account of his recent experience, better qualified to serve the purposes of the court. A poll was opened for the election of another sheriff, and here began the contest. The majority of the common hall, headed by the two sheriffs of the former year, refused to acknowledge the mayor's right of appointing one sheriff, but insisted that both must be elected by the livery. Papillon and Dubois were the persons whom the country party agreed to elect. Box was pointed out by the courtiers. The poll was opened, but as the mayor would not allow the election to proceed for two vacancies, the sheriffs and he separated, and each carried on the poll apart. The country party, who voted with the sheriffs for Papillon and Dubois, were much more numerous than those who voted with the mayor for Box. But as the mayor insisted that his poll was the only legal one, he declared Box to be duly elected. All difficulties, however, were not surmounted. Box, apprehensive of the consequences which might attend so dubious an election, fined off, and the mayor found it necessary to proceed to a new choice. When the matter was proposed to the common hall, a loud cry was raised, No election! No election! The two sheriffs already elected, Papillon and Dubois, were insisted on as the only legal magistrates, 
but as the mayor still maintained that box alone had been legally chosen and that it was now requisite to supply his place he opened books anew and during the tumult and confusion of the citizens a few of the mayor's partisans elected rich unknown to and unheeded by the rest of the livery north and rich were accordingly sworn in sheriffs for the ensuing year but it was necessary to send a guard of the train bands to protect them in entering upon their office a new mayor of the court party was soon after chosen by means as is pretended still more violent and irregular thus the country party were dislodged from their stronghold in the city where ever since the commencement of factions in the english government they had without interruption almost without molestation maintained a superiority it had been happy had the partialities hitherto objected to juries been corrected without giving place to partialities of an opposite kind but in the present distracted state of the nation an equitable neutrality was almost impossible to be attained the court and church party who were now named on juries made justice subservient to their factious views and the king had a prospect of obtaining full revenge on his enemies it was not long before the effects of these alterations were seen when it was first reported that the duke intended to leave scotland pilkington at that time sheriff a very violent man had broken out in these terms he has already burned the city and he is now coming to cut all our throats for these scandalous expressions the duke sued pilkington and enormous damages to the amount of one hundred thousand pounds were decreed him by law of england ratified in the great charter no fine or damages ought to extend to the total ruin of a criminal sir patience ward formerly mayor who gave evidence for pilkington was sued for perjury and condemned to the pillory a severe sentence and sufficient to deter all witnesses from appearing in favor of those who were prosecuted by the court but though the crown had obtained so great a victory in the city it was not quite decisive and the contest might be renewed every year at the election of magistrates an important project therefore was formed not only to make the king master of the city but by that precedent to gain him uncontrolled influence in all the corporations of england and thereby give the greatest wound to the legal constitution which the most powerful and most arbitrary monarchs had ever yet been able to inflict a writ of quo warranto was issued against the city that is an inquiry into the validity of its charter it was pretended that the city had forfeited all its privileges and ought to be declared no longer a corporation on account of two offences which the court of aldermen and common council had committed after the great fire in sixteen sixty six all the markets had been rebuilt and had been fitted up with many conveniences and in order to defray the expense the magistrates had imposed a small toll on goods brought to market in the year sixteen seventy nine they had addressed the king against the prorogation of parliament and had employed the following terms your petitioners are greatly surprised at the late prorogation whereby the prosecution of the public justice of the kingdom 
and the making of necessary provisions for the preservation of your majesty and your protestant subjects have received interruption these words were pretended to contain a scandalous reflection on the king and his measures the cause of the city was defended against the attorney and solicitor-generals by treby and pollexfin these last pleaded that since the foundation of the monarchy no corporation had ever yet been exposed to forfeiture and the thing itself implied an absurdity that a corporation as such was incapable of all crime or offence and none were answerable for any iniquity but the persons themselves who committed it that the members in choosing magistrates had entrusted them with legal powers only and where the magistrates exceeded these powers their acts were void but could never involve the body itself in any criminal imputation that such had ever been the practice of england except at the reformation when the monasteries were abolished but this was an extraordinary case and it was even thought necessary to ratify afterwards the whole transaction by act of parliament that corporate bodies framed for public good and calculated for perpetual duration ought not to be annihilated for the temporary faults of their members who might themselves without hurting the community be questioned for their offences that even a private estate if entailed could not be forfeited to the crown on account of treason committed by the tenant for life but upon his demise went to the next in remainder that the offences objected to the city far from deserving so severe a punishment were not ever worthy of the smallest reprehension that all corporations were invested with the power of making by-laws and the smallest borough in england had ever been allowed to carry the exercise of this power further than london had done in the instance complained of that the city having at its own expense repaired the markets which were built too on its own estate might as lawfully claim a small recompense from such as brought commodities thither as a man might require rent for a house of which he was possessed that those who disliked the condition might abstain from the market and whoever paid had done it voluntarily that it was an avowed right of the subjects to petition nor had the city in their address abused this privilege that the king himself had often declared the parliament often it is evident could not be fully prosecuted but in a parliamentary manner that the impeachment of the popish lords was certainly obstructed by the frequent prorogations as was also the enacting of necessary laws and providing for the defence of the nation that the loyalty of the city no less than their regard to self-preservation might prompt them to frame the petition since it was acknowledged that the king's life was every moment exposed to the most eminent danger from the popish conspiracy that the city had not accused the king of obstructing justice much less of having any such intention since it was allowed that evil counsellors were alone answerable for all the pernicious consequences of any measure and that it was unaccountable that two public deeds which had not during so long a time subjected to any even the smallest penalty the persons guilty of them should now be punished so severely upon the corporation which always was and always must be innocent 
It is evident that those who would apologize for the measures of the court must, in this case, found their arguments, not on law, but reasons of state. The judges, therefore, who condemn the city, are inexcusable, since the sole object of their determinations must ever be the pure principles of justice and equity. But the office of judge was, at that time, held during pleasure, and it was impossible that any cause where the court bent its force could ever be carried against it. After sentence was pronounced, the city applied in a humble manner to the king, and he agreed to restore their charter, but, in return, they were obliged to submit to the following regulations, that no mayor, sheriff, recorder, common sergeant, town clerk, or coroner should be admitted to the exercise of his office without his majesty's approbation. That if the king disapproved twice of the mayor or sheriffs elected, he may by commission appoint these magistrates. That the mayor and court of aldermen may, with his majesty's leave, displace any magistrate. And that no alderman, in case of a vacancy, shall be elected without consent of the court of aldermen, who, if they disapprove twice of the choice, may fill the vacancy. All the corporations in England, having the example of London before their eyes, saw how vain it would prove to contend with the court, and were, most of them, successively induced to surrender their charters into the king's hands. Considerable sums were exacted for restoring the charters, and all offices of power and profit were left at the disposal of the crown. It seems strange that the independent royalist, who never meant to make the crown absolute, should yet be so elated with the victory obtained over their adversaries, as to approve of a precedent which left no national privileges in security, but enabled the king, under like pretenses and by means of like instruments, to recall anew all those charters which at present he was pleased to grant. And every friend to liberty must allow that the nation, whose constitution was thus broken in the shock of faction, had a right, by every prudent expedient, to recover that security of which it was so unhappily bereaved. End of section 32, chapter 69, part 2. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.